0: Well, if you have your Bibles, open them to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're just now coming to chapter 3 as we've been working our way through this epistle for the last few months. And I want to direct your attention this morning to chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Let me read and then I'm going to pray. Peter writes, In the same way, you wives... Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. This is the reading of God's Word. Let's just bow in prayer. Father God, thank you so much just for the opportunity to meet together, to be together as a family, even here in joint heirs, and to come up, come under the teaching of your word. I do pray that this particular passage and this particular section of Scripture would be helpful and instructive and illumine the minds of not only the women, but the men here today who honestly so much need this teaching, give me wisdom and grace as I speak. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I don't know if you sensed it even as I read this passage, but we come here this morning to one of the most profound, practical texts that you could ever come to, presented to us by the Holy Spirit, because this text brings with it something that is really an unmatched blend, if you will, of severity and sweetness together. It attacks our sensibilities when we first read a text like this because it deals with roles in marriage and also the so-called inequality that shocks us to our cultural core. It, It attacks us in this way. It attacks our view of gospel transmission, first and foremost, because it tends to lead us to believe that the power of words are not so important anymore. It also assaults our view of fairness. Or influence or our biblical methodology, maybe even of evangelism, as you shall see, because at first glance it kind of seems offensive to our twenty-first century minds and our palates because everything it contains in the section that I just read about marriage and submission and rebellion lifestyle somehow kind of all comes together and connects to our post nineteen sixties sexist view of culture. And so we react. And we come to this text, especially these words, especially if you're a woman in this room, that you might find yourself holding your breath a little bit. You might be kind of looking around to see if everybody else is responding to the same way that you're responding to this text, or wondering how other people might feel to these commands, because they are. Are you grimacing? Are you bracing yourself? What could be a very demoralizing or demeaning time of instruction, because As many people have done with this text before, these words go against the grain. They go against the grain. They swim upstream against the cultural flow of thought. These are 2,000-year-old words, thoughts bringing with them a kind of severity with them, a kind of address a severe situation, and kind of offer a severe solution as well. And if any 21st-century woman in this room at this very moment is living with a husband who is disobedient actively to the Word of God, as Peter says, then whatever might be presented this morning is going to feel perhaps harsh. It's going to feel perhaps a little too extreme, as if the diagnosis and its application um, is colored by the way that a woman, through that experience, might actually hear these words. But I want to prepare something for you this morning. I want to prepare for you in this lesson an event this morning, an event that sees this text not just in its severity, but I'm going to show you, I think, an unexpected sweetness about this text too that you will see. It's a sweetness because hidden deep within this text and hidden deep within the human heart is an acknowledgement that what Peter is asserting here as being the remedy for broken-hearted homes is sweetly reminiscent of the way the Lord Jesus Christ lived his life. In fact, those are what the verses were right before this section, chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. There is then a sweetness in the fact that there is a beauty in these words alongside its severity because the life of Christ's silent suffering is also put into view here. And immediately he applies it to the most intricate, most vital area of our lives, and that is marriage. Right after he talks about the silent suffering of Jesus Christ, his next subject is marriage. Now, if you haven't been with us in the last few months as we've been going over this letter, 1 Peter has been really powerful in the lives of those of us who have been here. And you start to realize that Peter, as I've been going through this book, is very shocking And we have been shocked over and over again in the last few months, especially when it comes to this issue of suffering, because almost every verse in this book, though familiar as it might be to some of us who've studied it before, it's just loaded with extreme truth, extreme thoughts. And I say that because, you know, sometimes we become somewhat blasé, over time about certain teachings of Scripture, because if you've been at Grace Church as long as a lot of us have been, uh, you've memorized this since Awana, you know these passages backwards and forwards, you, you, you've learned it in a Bible study, and though we read our Bible every single morning and, and we understand these things to be true, we, we kind of start to detach ourselves from the intensity of the meaning of what we're reading. We just kind of accept the fact, for instance, that we're aliens and strangers, I mean, he has told us this in the book. That's how Peter starts the book. And so we think, okay, we're foreign to this world. Okay, I accept that. What's the next thought? And then we believe that we are called to suffer as Christians because first Peter states it, that we're supposed to suffer as believers. And so we go, okay, we've got it. What's the next thought? And then Peter gets into our kitchen. He gets into our kitchen because then he gets into marriage. And marriage is when... All of, the, all of the things that we had been just idly kind of accepting, climbs into the back seat, and he starts to look around our lives. Specifically, he pulled out first our income taxes when it came to government, and he started to talk about the fact that we have to be submissive, verse 13 of chapter 2, to submit to government because the whole Christian life is one big idea of submission to authority. And then as we're starting to squirm a little bit because he's talking about our need to suffer, we remember in chapter 2 verse 16 he says and by the way you're a slave not long, no longer to the world but now you're a slave to God. You're a do-loss of God. And so you've been paid for, bought with a price, signed sealed delivery. So now you are free to be a slave. And as we're trying to kind of rock and reel away from that other blow that just been given to us, he says for this political incorrectness of chapter 2, verse 18. He says, oh, and obey your earthly masters too if you are slaves of God. Then remember that affects the fact that you're an earthly slave to your employer or to your masters. And remember, most of Peter's audience originally were slaves. And so now He comes to this next glaring issue because we're trembling. We're not sure what we're going to do next, what's going to happen. And we're starting to resist. We want to almost protest and shake our fist. And yet, at this moment, he says, now, your purpose, chapter 2, verse 21, in life is to suffer and persevere through trials just like the sinless, suffering slave of God himself, Jesus Christ. He says, are you wounded? Well, his wounds will heal you. Are you lost? Well, are you strained? Well, he will find you. Are you hurting? He'll protect you. But you must follow in his steps. You must follow Christ as he walked. You must be resolved to walk like Christ, to love him. You must walk like him. If you say you follow him, you have to put your foot inside his footprints and feel his pain and take his blows and suffer his threats. If you really want to be like him, you have to want to live like him as well. And then suddenly the tears stop and the fist becomes unclenched and our voices become a little quiet because we believe in the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in his submission we, we know, yes, Lord, I want to walk with you. I, I want to walk with you, all of you, all the time. I want to suffer as you suffer it, if that means it will please you and it finds favor with you. I will trust the Father, too, and all my trials and all my heartaches, if that's your will, and if that means we'll have peace. And then Peter He says this applies to your marriage, too. And then we say, that's too much. You've asked too much. You've asked too much. It's too severe. This is too hard. Um, Too crushing. Not that. No, no, no. Extreme. Not our marriages. You can have my political leanings. You can have the governmental alliances. You can have my soul in slavery. You can have my boss. I'll submit to him. I'll submit to her. I will submit to their harshness, their foulness. I'll endure that. But Lord, please, please, not my marriage. Please, not that too, because it's too broken. It's too lost. It's too unfixable. I'll give you my life, but don't ask me for my marriage. So what does Peter do? Right after he finishes unfolding how Christ silently suffered abuse in sinless perfection by making the father and the favor of the father the most important thing in the universe to him. He then tells the Christian wife to do exactly the same thing with their husbands. And that's what makes it both severe and sweet at the same time. The suffering is severe, but the one who offers the solution and the example is so sweet. Charles Spurgeon said, it's the rose when crushed makes sweet perfume. So I have titled this sermon today, The Sweet Silence of Submission. The Sweet Silence of Submission, because silence and submission has been there now for a while, and it's not because I have chosen it, but because that's what God has chosen for us to deal with now in the next set of verses before us. So the idea presented here is we silence the world's criticisms of the gospel, we silently submit to their demands and therefore prove the gospel is true. Silence being at times a refusal to act in the way that we could act. Silence sometimes is because our own purpose is not to gain our rights, but to lose to win the lost is what we're trying to do. Not to gain our rights, but to win the lost. And Peter says this in verse 15 in the middle, that when you do right, you silence the ignorance of foolish men, if you see that. You're going to silence the foolish men by your silence as well. Peter says in verse 23 that while Christ was being reviled, he did not revile, he uttered no threats. Isaiah 53, which is the Old Testament passage that Peter is referring to here in verse 7 of chapter 53, he did not open his mouth, the Scripture tells us. So the pattern here is set before us, and I want you to think through it with us, that when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, and at the end it says that their husbands may be one without a word... We're not surprised because silent submission is already being proved by Peter to have a pattern for his followers. We already see that as the implication in the text. But here, here Peter says something even more inexplicable than before. In chapter 2, verse 18, he said, For slaves to obey earthly masters who are both gentle and crooked or unreasonable, But here in chapter 3, verse 1, he says it this way, same dynamic, but focused in on husbands instead. Submit both to husbands in general and, middle of verse 1, those who are disobedient to the word. Disobedient to the word. This is a Greek word that means not just disobedient, Not just those who are unbelieving, perhaps, but those who are actively engaged in the art of refusing to believe the gospel, refusing to believe, who actively reject Christian message, the message of the gospel, who literally stand opposed to it, who refuse to accept it. Even those husbands submit. So Peter, in essence, paints one stroke, all husbands, including believing husbands, unbelieving, actively hostile, all must be submitted to. Thus, our text focuses on the extreme, yet once more, that being idea, how can submission to those in hostile authority over us find favor with God? How can that fulfill our life's purpose and win them to Christ, which must be the evangelistic motive for all of us? So if you're taking notes this morning, just to set the stage there, again, we have three aspects of submission here that I want to look at, three aspects that can melt hard husbands' hearts. Three aspects of submission that can melt hard husbands' hearts. Three aspects of submission that Peter gives to Christian wives Not only to win them, not only to win their husbands, disobedient as they might be, but how to win their husbands' hearts altogether to Christ. So first, let's look at this. The first aspect of submission that I want to look at with you this morning that wins over and melts a hard-hearted husband is, number one, remember, submission is silent submission is silent. And I'm going to explain this as I go. When we go back to verse one of chapter three, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. You know, it's always important every time we begin a new section um, that we cover some concepts that need to be made more specific, and I think it is important because the gorilla in the room, if you will, uh, the gorilla in the room is not the next silent part, but the words submission. That's just a tough thing. It's just a tough idea, uh, hupotasio, a military term. You've heard it. If you've been in the Christian church for long, you know this. It's a military term to be put under to submit to one's control, to yield, to obey. It's like a troop, to arrange troops underneath the command of a leader. It's used all over the New Testament. I won't give you all of the passages, but it's used of the submission of Jesus to the authority of his parents. And you see that in Luke 2.51, of demons being in subjection to the disciples, Luke 10.17. You see that as, again, citizens being subject to governing authorities in Romans 13. You see it of the universe being subject to Christ, or you see it in 1 Corinthians 15. It's all throughout the New Testament, this idea of submission, and here, of course, wives being subject or in submission to their husbands. So submission is a very, very key issue in the life of a Christian. And yet, gentlemen, can I direct your attention to the very clear exegetical feature of this text? Peter does not tell your wife that she is to submit. Peter does not tell you, excuse me, to tell your wife to submit, okay? Just so you know, it's not there. That's, he's, God is telling your wife to submit, but you don't get the opportunity to remind her of that. And I've had that happen. Oh. Peter says for the wives to submit by speaking directly to them. Also, gentlemen, please note that wives are to submit... To, to the beginning of this verse, their own husbands, okay? Not husbands in general. Uh, that's kind of a crazy notion, but it has definitely been circulated as if once you're married, you gain kind of universal acceptance into the land of lordship. And now, uh, <laughs> I don't know if she understands who she's talking to. I'm a married man. And I've uh, seen this in our church. We have seen this become so distorted. I think it's really crushing. I have counseled um, a man and his wife, who I told not to get married. And uh, when they did, he um, came in with, with his wife, and she was in tears, and he said, she's not submitting. <laughs> and um, she has to submit. The Bible tells her to submit. And since she won't do that, I've enforced some very clear guidelines. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said with tears, he makes me sleep on the floor beside the bed. True story. He came from a Muslim background, and he felt like that. And she's going, do I have to do that? Is that what I have to do? No. No, 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 no. That's not really a good idea, and it's not a biblical idea of what submission is. And get, we can get into this so much, but I'll, just a side comment. It's not in my notes. But you have to earn that respect. You have, to, you have to live a life before your wife that she wants to submit to you. More on that in a second. So this is not an issue for you to speak of, man. It's an issue for you to be worthy of, okay, to be worthy of. But, ladies, also, the text is clear that you are to follow your husband's counsel. You do what they ask of you, even if they themselves are unbelieving and harsh towards Christ. You try to please them in every way possible. Now, historically, the situation is very, very interesting development. Uh, Just so you know, even the intensity of how Peter's audience is taking this in the sphere of ancient civilization, just so you know, women had no rights, okay? Women had no rights. Jewish law said that a woman was a thing. Uh, She was owned by her husband in the exact same way he owned his sheep and goats. Uh, In Greek civilization, the duty of the woman was to remain indoors and be obedient to her husband. That's a quote to remain indoors. It was a sign that a woman was good in the Greek mindset, that she should be seen as little as possible. Uh, It was a sign of her respect. She had no kind of independent existence, no mind of her own. Under Roman law, a woman had zero rights uh, if she, in the law, she remained forever a child in a sense. She was under the, her father, and he was under uh, the father's power, which gave the power to the father, the right of even life and death over her. Um, in fact, this one Roman, ancient Roman, Cato the censor said, quote, if you were to catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you can kill her with impunity without a trial, end quote. Roman matrons were prohibited from drinking wine, and one man beat his wife to death when he found her doing so. This is all throughout ancient history. And then to add to that, a widespread expectation of wives regarding the religion of the household was extreme. A family's religion was transmitted through the males, not through the females, and the ranking of the household, he was the chief priest. And upon a marriage, a girl denounced her father's religion and had to worship her husband's religion. In this one piece of ancient text called Advice to Bride and Groom, it writes, A woman ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends, hence it is becoming for a wife to worship and know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the door tight upon all strange rituals and outlandish superstitions. For with no God do stealthy and secret rites performed by a woman find any favor. End quote. So there's the Christian wife in this culture, knowing that this is the world in which she lives, and somehow, by the gospel being shared with her, by somehow she has come to her senses, she has repented of her idolatry, and she believed on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of her sins, and now she's a believer and she's heaven bound. And interestingly, she's transported into a new world of slavery with new troubles and concerning the protection of her husband's reputation. Uh, Even a husband that sees her coming to Christ as a personal humiliation for his social status and his friends and business. If you came to Christ, and some of you understand this because you have family members that have disowned you since you've come to Christ, but it was a humiliation for the man to have his wife come to another god, but the gods of his own household. And she loves her husband, but she loves Christ now more. And so now the power of her indebtedness to God frees her from the bondage of sin, but now binds her to the silent suffering that Christ has exemplified. And this role is to be her new role in the house. And, you know, we see trickles of this even now. It's really, really difficult. I remember this in the church. There's so many different stories I get. But, ladies, it is always more honoring to your husbands, for instance, uh, to ask them a question and let them grapple with it. than go to another man who's not your husband and ask them, what do you think the answer is? Uh, and I say this with all humility. I really do. Uh, sometimes a lady will come up to me and ask me a question. If she's married, I, I really want to say, well, you should just go ask your husband just ask your husband because he's the leader, your head. And uh, if you have any questions, you both want to come, then we can talk about this, but, but he's your head. The wife is to always be in this way, making sure her relationship with her husband is tranquil. It's not disturbed. It's your role, ladies, in marriage to win your husband if they're disobedient to the word without a word. And let me explain what that means. Very few women desire to submit to their husbands in this way because their husbands do not praise their wives for giving them this unearned respect. And when a man sees his wife, who may know more than he does in a particular area of life, and she looks at him in silence when she could easily instruct him, and she waits for the invitation before she speaks, he becomes aware of his unworthiness He becomes aware of the fact that he doesn't have the right that she is giving him, and he becomes inspired to want to lead her because she allows him the encouragement, and then he will lead, and then he'll want to lead and grow with that leadership. That's just the first idea, that submission is silent. What's the second point here as I keep going? Submission is also seen. Not only is submission silent, submission, number two, is seen. And you get this in verse 2 and 3. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. Let's just end right there. So silence or winning without a word does not infer a lack of communication, but a form of communication that is vastly more pervasive and persuasive over time, and that is nonverbal communication. Nonverbal communication is very, very important to the winning. So it's not only are you silent, but your silence now is seen. You know, UCLA did a study many years ago now, I think it's been over 10, where they say 80% of all human behavior and the way we communicate is nonverbal. We communicate more. You understand on some level more of what I'm saying by the way that I'm saying it, not just the words themselves. This came up the other day. My sons were going to a ministry here, and the pastor wasn't there, and somebody else was speaking. And I said, so how'd it go? And he goes, hey, it was really monotone. It was just, you know, really flat and monotone. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting observation. And then my son said, I didn't know what was important. I didn't know what, I couldn't tell. So he's hearing the words, but he doesn't know what's important because of just the way it's said. So, a lot of what we do in life is not just verbal, it's also behavioral. It's also what a man not only uh, uh, sees in his wife that wins his heart, it's what he observes in her, which infers if you're going to see this observing behavior, that we have a habitual, constant reinforcement in the home of this behavior. Wives, you are to be, uh, they are to observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, This has to do with seeing something for yourself. This means that the man has to see something that's constant in his wife. This word is only used once in the New Testament, or excuse me, twice, both times in Peter, both times referring to unbelievers taking note of Christian behavior and making an evaluation that persuades them. You'll see it in chapter two. Verse 12, when he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing they slander you, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. He says the same thing in 1st Peter here too, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So the idea here is, ladies, you're going to live in such a way where it's not enough to be silent. It's not enough not to say anything because silence could infer not doing anything. But Peter said the gospel truth can only be spoken so many times before it has to be observed to be believed. You can tell your husband many, many times the truth. You can tell your husband uh, copy and paste reports of what you just read and what you just saw and what you learned on a podcast or in a sermon. But after a while, it's not enough. It has to be that it's your biblical understanding matched with also the behavior that you manifest in front of Him. Because it's so easy to say you're a Christian, right? It's so easy. It's it's, it's even easy at times not to speak when it's in your best interest not to speak, but to live the Christian message, to have others know you who see you day in, day out, observe your actions, that you live your entire life as if you were massively indebted to the power of the gospel's transforming work, that's soul winning. That's the kind of work and behavior where a man and a woman are completely mesmerized by how this life has been changed. You know, I'm afraid that many of us have blind spots when it comes to our Christian life. You know, blind spot. Blind spot is a, a hole in your eye where your optic nerve connects to your eye bulb, and it creates a blank in your vision. And this is the miracle of, of God. And then because of your other eye, you overcompensate and correct, and so the spot is never seen. But you have a blind spot, you just don't see it. So we think we're living life. <laughs> I like Toya's response to that. Um, we think we're living lives honoring to God, but our spouse doesn't see it. Our spouse isn't aware of it, which makes us angry because we're convinced we're so godly and we're so good. But until you love, until your submissiveness and your genuineness is profound enough to be seen, it really isn't soul winning. You're just being quiet. It's not enough to be quiet. It's not any kind of behavior either, ladies. Very specifically, Peter says, verse 2, chase and respectful behavior. Those two words really balance each other in this respect. So chase is not a word that really we use much anymore, but it means literally holy, to be holy. But in this context, it refers to purity, to be pure. It speaks of purity in your lifestyle, being a Christian in your morals, yes, of course, but also sexually pure in your marriage. So it suggests loyalty. You see just a little history here. The husband and society would perceive when the wife would worship Jesus Christ that that was rebellion against the husband, especially if she worshiped Christ exclusively as she ought. And so if the wife persisted in her new religion to the extent outside the household people would learn of it, the husband would feel embarrassed and he would feel again that that like he's being damaged in his social standing even to the point of maybe disqualifying him with other honors and offices in the community. And so the wife's attendance even at Christian worship would provide the opportunity for her to have fellowship with other Christians who possibly were not her husband's friends and therefore depending on you know the specifics of the social expectations a wife's conversion to Christ could potentially have some very far-reaching implications in her family. Men who lost their wives to Christ could be jealous. They could be jealous over Christ. Think of that. I am jealous over this man that you say you love more than me, over your new religion, so much so that her entire conversion could be seen as like a form of betrayal. So Peter here states that it is the pure behavior of the wife it's the pure behavior of the wife that attracts the unbelieving husband. Purity attracts. Purity is attractive. But you see, that's not all. Then you have respect attracts. Respect attracts. Literally, the word here is phobos, fear. This is fear. Their conduct, like 1 Peter 1.17 says, it's to be in fear, the fear of God to be in reverent purity and fearing God during the earthly stay. So this woman is exemplifying before her husband, not just silence, it is her fear of God that produces her respect for her husband, which combined with her purity forces him to admit that there is a divine presence in her life. Something is happening with my wife that is something that cannot be mocked, something that I have to bend the knee to to recognize that it is real and authentic. You know, men crave respect. I don't know if you know that. Men crave respect and they are baffled when they receive undeserved respect. They might enjoy it, they might like it, they might even, you might think they'll use it against you. But Peter says, let them see that behavior. But I want you to notice that Peter's view of silence might lead these women into making themselves attractive in a way that he's not suggesting. So he injects a comment in verse 3 where he says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. Let it be the hidden person of the heart. Now, this is going to bleed over to my next point real quick, but I just want to say this. While we're on the subject of husbands seeing your submission as pure and loyal toward him and God, your And I think you understand this. Most people do uh, in, in this class. It's not for sure with everybody. People are different places with their sanctification. Your true attractiveness as a woman doesn't come from what you wear. Your true attractiveness doesn't come from what you wear. And I want to speak on that in just a minute. But ladies, what you wear should be worn in purity and respect for your husband because Peter's instructions about not adoring yourself outside make sense. If this Christian woman is attending a church service, a worship service, and she's outside the home without her husband, it would be perceived as possibly scandalous, unquestionably in the culture. In fact, Pylos considered outward adornments as instruments of seduction. If you wore like jewelry, it's instruments of seduction. That a woman's cosmetics were viewed as an attempt to deceive. Well, John MacArthur says that if the barn needs painting, then you should paint the barn. So you got to remember that too. Uh, But some clothing can be a distraction from what is essential. You know just so you know a little history about this and the romans and the greeks it's kind of interesting there were many ways of dressing their hair that is just incredible uh it was waved and dyed sometimes black more often wigs were born were worn and they were blonde blonde wigs were kind of the thing uh which are found even in christian catacombs that that there's blonde wigs there it's just an interesting side note purple was the favorite color for clothes Uh, People would spend an exorbitant amount of money to have purple. Uh, One stated twice in his writings that one pound of purple wool was like a thousand denarii. So this is extremely valuable. Diamonds, emeralds, of course, were all over and, of course, highly valued. And it says even that Julius Caesar bought for uh, his woman a pearl which cost him 65 1,250 pounds, which is the number today, but that would be highly even exaggerated. So even the secular writers of Peter's day were weary of such kind of wardrobes. You didn't want to dress like that. Seneca in uh, AD, 40 AD wrote this about his mother. This is really sweet. Unchastity, the greatest evil of our time, has never classed you with the great majority of women, speaking to his mom. Jewels have never moved you nor pearls. You have never defiled your face with paints and cosmetics. Never have you fancied the kind of dress that exposed no greater nakedness by being removed. Your only ornament, the kind of beauty that time does not tarnish, is the great honor of modesty. So Peter states here, and it's really important, You win your husbands, ladies, the disobedient ones, and the ones that aren't disobedient either. You you win them without a word uh, or a wardrobe, but it's your purity and your respect. That's what softens their heart. We have so many different styles represented, even in our church, different trends. This passage does not outlaw adornments uh, from existing on Christian women, but I will tell you that a man's heart trusts a woman who dresses in a way that she doesn't have to be unnecessarily drawing attention to herself or to her form or to her outside. And if the excuse for dressing in that way of exposing your shape is said to be for your husband, which I've heard people say, just understand that even an unbelieving husband isn't drawn to Christ by being, you being attractive to him in that way. You, the attraction According to God, is your purity. Your purity and your chasteness and respect. And this goes to the next and last point that we have, just the main part of our time. The whole issue begs that submission can be boiled down to silence. It can be, submission must be seen. And number three, and just lastly and quickly, submission is sweet. Submission is silent, submission is seen, and submission is sweet. And we see that just in verse four and following. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Again, the idea here is silent arises from Peter's pen. This idea of being silent comes from his writing, and he wraps it with this gentle, what constitutes to be the definition of this woman. Why is she so special? It's the woman On the inside that counts. It's what's hidden inside that you can't see that has such great weight before God. God sees what husbands can't see. And he loves what's inside your heart when it's gentle and quiet in your spirit and when you trust God. And we know that from Proverbs 31, charm is deceptive, Beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord, she's to be praised. And you know what? One day, your husband will come to see your love for Christ as precious, too, if you do everything in your power to live your life in such a way that he is convinced you love God because of how much love you have and how much love you give him when he doesn't deserve it. It We're all saved by the power of God's election, but he sees that, and Peter says, you can win your husband. Jesus said that if you love only those people that love you, what kind of reward do you expect? Those who reject Christ do that, but the miracle of salvation is that there is a principle here in this text that just really helps us understand how to win these lost, erring husbands or even lost wives. The principle is here. Lost relatives, lost roommates, and that is to be so committed to Christ that we stand on our Savior's promise as seen in how we live from the inside out, the truth of Scripture, until they become convinced by God. And then in verse 5, he says, this has always been the way it's been, the way faithful, God-fearing women have proceeded in their adornment. It was, it was sweet, and was silent, and it was submissive, and it was like Sarah. It says, for in this way, verse 5, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, that same adoration, that same dress, being submissive to their own husbands, just like Sarah, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Now, I don't have time to get into it, but just so you know, um, Sarah's every lady's prototype, every lady's prototype, and she is referred to as speaking to Abraham as Lord, and that's a pretty hard pill to swallow because, you know, he, was a, he had a bunch of lame brain kind of ideas going on about, yes, she is his sister, but he didn't present it that way. It was just, just horrible. Yeah, she, she obeyed him, you know. Now, the question is, do you obey your husband to sin? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But there is a very fine um, line there to walk, to look at these ancient heroines and how they proceeded in their husband's lives and to go now look at even maybe a modern heroine that I want to present to you right now. There is a woman here at Grace Community Church, this is my conclusion, who's at this point, she's over 90 years old. Uh, And she is so stately, and she is so wonderful, and she is sharp, and she's an ambassador for sure. Uh, I had lunch with her, and Clayton, gosh, many years ago, and she impressed upon me to listen to her story, and I did. Uh, he, 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 she told me that her husband never told her that he loved her, um, that they fell in love uh, over motorcycles <laughs> back in the 60s, um, all over the country, going one way or the other. But he could never speak of love. He could never do it. And then she gets saved, radically, radically. Uh, saved in such a way where she tried and tried and tried to live before her husband and speak for her husband about the gospel, but to no avail. She committed to never, ever making him jealous about Jesus, but pray for him. I don't want him to think that I have abandoned him, but I'm praying for him and I love him. And when he was dying, On that last day, unable to speak, she asked him, will you love Christ? And he believed at the last moment. He was the thief on the cross. She lived 1 Peter 3. She lived it. She devoted her life to never receiving affirmation of even his love. And he is in heaven today. That's the example, I think some of you know, Lauren, Uh, that's the example of a godly, righteous response to a disobedient husband. Let's pray. Father, I know three or four more messages on this one topic would be necessary, and Father, we'll see you work out all those things, but I do ask you to impress upon the hearts of everyone here the men that we are not worthy of any of the respect or the confidence or the encouragement that most of our wives give us. We are sinners saved by grace. And yet, when we hear this text, Lord, all of the women, I pray that you just encourage their hearts that you have said through the great apostle that the way to this man's heart for the sake of Christ is through silent, believable life, and to love him and to support him, and to be that example like Sarah until the very end. Father, I pray this was an encouragement, and I pray this helped. And I pray that all the women here who have wonderful marriages just rejoice because they see uh, the sweetness of that. But, Father, for those here who struggle and who have little or no expressions of love in their house as well with their unbelieving husbands, Keep them faithful to the very end. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.